This morning is October 26th. It is 2014. The church of the living God is a victorious entity. And yet it is under siege even by our own municipalities. I think it's time to draw a line in the sand. Today's message will be called Down But Not Out. And I want to begin with a rather lengthy quote from Dr. Bob Moorhead's book, A Word Aptly Spoken. It may not be the habit of this pulpit to quote poetry, but I trust by the end of it you will see why we've done it today. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Christ Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My past is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable and my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the fact of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Christ Jesus. I must give until I drop and preach until all know. And when my time is up, we will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we get a bigger amen for that? Thank you, mighty God, for a mayor that is so immoral that a little slap from her has woken up the Christians in our community. Thank you, mighty God, for a step that is so far over the line that even the namby-pamby, lukewarm church world is beginning to come to its senses. I tell you, church, this is a fine hour that we live in. You may have suffered setback. You may not have lived your finest days up until this point. But I tell you, we were born for such an hour as this. It is time to rise to the challenge, to let our faith meet the floodwaters. It is time to rise to become the church of Jesus Christ that is written about in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Psalm 34 and say there when you are there. I would like to talk to you for a moment about the inevitability of trials. In Psalm 34, starting in verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. How many troubles? 
The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. I'd like to focus on this portion of a sentence, as ridiculous as that may seem. Many troubles, but the Lord delivers. This is the defining characteristic of men of God. Many troubles, but the Lord delivers from them all. If you are looking for a life of ease, you have chosen the wrong religion. If you are looking for a life of comfort or have bought what the TV preachers are selling, you have been deceived. Many troubles, but the Lord delivers from them all. The church of the living God is defined by the struggles that we are in and what we do in those struggles. We were built for the adversity that bears brothers. 1 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 2, says this, We sent Timothy, who is our brother, and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. What is your destiny? Trouble, more trouble, and trouble after that trouble. A righteous man may have many troubles, many trials, but the Lord. Come on, somebody say, but the Lord. In great trial comes a need for a great deliverer. When you have great adversity, you have need for a great advocate. When you are in great problem, then we have a chance to bring a great praise for a great prince. This is how the kingdom works. The people of God find themselves in ever-deepening holes. And the living God reaches ever further down to raise them ever higher. This is the story of the Bible. It did not change in the 20th century because the church marketed it differently. It did not change because some pastor decided that he no longer wanted to eat the bread of affliction. The gospel is about a people in a very great problem receiving a very great Savior. Turn with me to First James. First James. James, the first chapter. I'm excited today. In the first chapter of James... Consider these powerful words in verse 2. Consider it pure joy. (laughs) This is a familiar scripture and it would be easy to overlook. Don't consider it joy. Consider it pure joy. What does it mean to have pure joy? Untainted, unmixed uncontaminated, no other substance in there, only this and nothing else. Not joy mixed with a little sorrow, not joy mixed with a little despair, not a momentary joy. Consider it pure joy, some pure joy. Say it with me, pure joy. James knew what the church was built for. James knew what your life was destined for. James knew what your design was and how God would bring you to maturity. So he says, consider it pure joy, 
my brothers. He's not addressing the lost. He's not addressing the fallen. He's not addressing those who were once a part of the faith and are no longer. He is addressing the faithful. If you're enduring trials today, and I hope you are. If you're enduring adversity today, and I hope you are. It's a sign that you're a brother. That you're opposed by an enemy who sees you as a threat. It is a sign not that you are failing, but that you are succeeding. In this church, we have a unique problem. We suffer from spiritual warfare because we are dangerous to the enemy. Perhaps if we were a book club or a bless me group, we would not struggle so. But despite all evidence to the contrary, many of us are convinced that we're failing. Despite all evidence to the contrary, it's as if we are trying to snatch defeat right out of the jaws of victory. I want to tell you today that your adversity is a sign. It's a sign that you are dangerous to the enemy and valuable to God. Valuable enough that he wants to develop you. Valuable enough that he will not leave you where you are. Valuable enough that he is going to perfect his character inside of you. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. How many kinds? Many kinds. Finances, relationship, holiness. So, well, it's one thing when it's a trial that's outside of me, but what do I do when it's a trial inside of me? He says trials of many kinds. He didn't limit it to a trial that was not your fault. Most of the most devastating trials that I have ever faced are the ones that I caused. Have you ever proposed a solution only to find out it birthed 12 problems? If you have an ulcer on the end of your finger, there is a surgical solution for that. We can amputate your finger. It may not be the best solution, but it is a solution. Cutting off our nose despite our face. Oh, when you're in a pit that you've dug for yourself, how deep is that pit? Would rather that this would be the work of an enemy. But what do you do when the enemy was you? Consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, he makes no distinction about the source of the trial. He says trials of many kinds. And there is a reason. He goes on to say, because you know that the testing of your faith, does it test your faith when you are the biggest obstacle to your faith? Of course it does. Does it test your faith when the obstacle is a third party? Of course it does. Trials of many kinds. Whatever test your faith is in fact a trial. Are you hearing me this morning? Are you undergoing trials? Or are you undergoing slumber? If you have rested your hands, folded your hands, and a little slumber and a little sleep has come upon you, so has spiritual poverty. This is the day of diligence. This is the day for the vigilant. In the name of Jesus Christ... This is our finest hour. Pure joy is coming upon us because many kinds of trials have come upon us. And he says this, because you know that the testing of your faith develops something. Perseverance. Oh my goodness. Testing develops perseverance. How many of you know what Microsoft Word is? Those of you that don't, 
Suzanne Hall will explain it to you after the service because she is more up on technology than you are. Microsoft Word has a feature. When you type a word like perseverance, not only will it correct your spelling, praise God for that, but if you highlight the word and hit shift F7, what happens? A thesaurus pops up. I want to tell you about the thesaurus for the word perseverance. This is Microsoft's thesaurus. Perseverance, persistence, determination, grit, insistence, resolution, stubbornness, doggedness, diligence, resolve, drive, purpose, tenacity, dedication, obstinacy, devotion, tirelessness, endurance, steadfastness, urgency, firmness, pushiness. I thought, dear God, it's describing Michael Hutchinson. It's describing Brent Vincent. It's describing Eric Stevens. Great trials. Bring a testing that develops perseverance. Church, if we didn't endure any resistance, you wouldn't get a chance to learn what perseverance is. Oh, this raises another question. He says this, perseverance must finish its work. Perseverance what? You know why perseverance must? Because determination doesn't quit. Grit doesn't give up. Insistence doesn't back away. Resolution does not decide to be a vacillation. Perseverance must finish its work. What is happening to you, you were destined for. What is happening to you is a process that must come to completion. Oh, if you give up, you never will know how close you got to completion. How many of you believe that the Lord will deliver you? If you believe that the Lord will deliver you, then why push against this? This boulder in my way. Why strain? Why fight? Why push against it? Why do I labor at it? Why do I show grit and tenacity and determination? Why? If the Lord's going to move it. Why do I lean against it every day? Why do I hit it with a hammer every day? Why do I try to get friends to push it? Why persevere? If the boulder's not moving, but we know God will move it, why not just sit back and say, if the Lord wants it moved, He will move it. Because on the day that He moves that boulder, you say, Lord, why did you make me strain against it? Why did I fight with holiness? Why did I struggle with finances? Why were my relationships so hard? You say, look at your arms, son. Look at your legs, son. Look at your back. Do you see what I've built into you? You're stronger than you were before. You're more of a man than you were before. My character is in you where it would not have been before. Your trials are developing something in you. When young men weight train, and it's been many years for me, but I live with one now, and you reach a plateau... And you can't go any further. You move into isometric exercises. You push against things that are immovable. And you do it because it requires maximal force with absolutely no give. 
You don't get close and then fail. It's all failure, but it's maximal exertion. And on the other side of that comes serious breakthrough. When you hit a plateau in a bench, when you hit a plateau in a squat, when you hit a plateau in a deadlift, the answer for your plateau is isometric exercises. Pushing against immovable objects. You may have boulders in your life that you believe are immovable today. And it is developing something in you that is irremovable from you. Are you hearing me? The most godly people I know are also the most stubborn. Those who will accomplish something for the kingdom are the most resolute. You may not like everything that they believe. You may not like every character trait they have, but you better get out of their way because they will accomplish something. Amen? Amen. Resistance creates that in you. You want to know what it is to be a man of character. You need to be forged in adversity. Don't think that praise will develop in you all that you need. Praise is the thing that tests you to see whether what is in you is worthy of being eternal or not. We are destined for trials. We need the trials. Trials are inevitable. Say it with me. Trials are... So we're not going to whine. We're going to consider them... Oh, untainted joy. Unadulterated joy. Pure joy, solid joy, whole joy. Oh, you ought to be a joyful group of people, haven't you? That's why the only right response for a terrible trial is a great big smile on your face. Let the enemy wonder whether you're baring your teeth or showing your grin. Oh, it is a defeating thing. To have hit somebody with all that you have and they smile at you. Church, hear this list one more time. Persistence, determination, grit, insistence, resolution, stubbornness, doggedness. Come on, do we have some doggedness in here? Diligence, resolve, drive. Do we have some drive in the house of God today? Purpose, tenacity, dedication. Oh, I love this one. Obstinacy. Devotion, tirelessness, endurance, steadfastness, urgency, firmness, pushiness. This was Microsoft's list. If Microsoft were the product of the Spirit-filled, if Microsoft were the product of the church of the living God, I suspect that the list would be even more glorious. But this is a pretty good start, isn't it? When somebody says you're pushy, take it as a compliment. When somebody says that you're tenacious, smile. They have no idea. They haven't known you long enough to know how tenacious you actually are. Oh, church, many trials of many kinds, but they develop in us perseverance. And perseverance finishes its work so that you become mature. What if you didn't do very good in this trial? 
There's another one on its way to bring you to maturity. And if you have not yet reached the place of maturity, we don't expect as much from the immature as we do the mature. You just say, be patient with me, friend. I'm still in the midst of my trial. I hope you have hope this morning. I want to, I want to bring to you a couple jewels about the rigors of the Christian life and their purposes. The first one, our trials are inevitable. The second is the temporary nature of the setbacks that you experience in trials. Turn with me to Psalm 37. When you get to verse 23, stop. Say there when you were there. Come on, church. Y'all going with me? If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. I'd like to focus on this part of the verse. Though he stumble, he will not fall. Friends, we don't fall. We stumble. Our setbacks are temporary. They are not permanent. My life is not over. Don't count me out. When I persevere, I am maturing. It may look to you like I'm failing, but the race is not yet over. You don't have enough perspective on my life to know whether or not I have fallen because my life is not over. The man who perseveres is on his way to maturity at one rate or another. Are you persevering? Then you may stumble, but you have not fallen. The man who has fallen is no longer persevering. He's no longer pushing. He is no longer resolute. He has given up. And as long as I don't give up, as long as you don't give up, then you are not fallen and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. The world may print across the headlines of a newspaper, so-and-so has fallen, but if a man trusts Jesus, he's not fallen, he stumbles. Oh, how they love to count us out. Don't you count me out. When you look in the mirror, don't you count you out. If you persevere, you're on your way to maturity. So you tripped up in your trial. It's not over yet. God has graciously provided another. One of my favorite scenes in a movie. A man is killing members of an opposing force. Yes, I watch those kind of movies. And he turns to his buddy and says, Don't worry, little brother. There are more. This is how we face trials. Yesterday may have got you, but today is not over yet. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Turn with me to the book of Judges. When you arrive at the 16th chapter, proudly announce that you are there. I found it. There is no figure in the Bible that I identify more with than Samson. Largely because he's the biggest failure that I've ever read about. And he's the biggest success that I've ever seen. All in the same man. I loathe him. And I love him. 
I admire him and I would be ashamed to know him. He reminds me very much of me. My greatest strengths are also my greatest weaknesses. And in the midst of our greatest failures, God often brings his greatest successes. I would like to bring you to a place in Samson's life where he's lost his eyes. He's lost his hair, the symbol of his covenant. He's lost his strength. And it seems that he's lost his Lord. Have you never been there? I know what it is to crawl out of bed when the whole family is still asleep. Grasp my carpet with my fist and cry out before God because I want to stay saved. To love the Lord and not be sure that I love all of the people that He loves. To love the church of the living God but not love the church I was in at the time. I know what it is to struggle and to feel a failure. But I didn't stop that morning. And I didn't jump off that bridge. And I didn't end up at the end of that rope. It didn't define me because I didn't stay there. Are you hearing me? Let's read about Samson. This is the 16th chapter, the 20th verse. And she called... Samson, the Philistines are upon you. The bear has jumped on your back. The weight of your guilt, the weight of your sin, the weight of your failure upon you. And how heavy is that weight? This is why the Lord is close to those who are crushed in spirit, not pressed in spirit. Not squeezed in spirit. Not lightly afflicted in spirit. Crushed in spirit. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I will go out as before and shake myself free. He did not know that the Lord had left him. How sad is that verse? And it goes on in churches all across the world every day. No longer in the liturgy. No longer in the prayer service. No longer in the worship service. And no one notices. When I was a younger Christian, I often talked about stained glass being a substitute for the celestial feeling of a worship service. For the clothing of the ecumenical staff being a substitute for being clothed with Christ. For the glory of the building being a substitute for the glory of the Lord that is no longer there. But I have lived long enough to see spirit-filled, charismatic Pentecostals all make the very same mistakes. Do you really think we don't have our liturgy? Do you really think we don't have our vain rituals repeated endlessly, service after service? Lip service to God that our hearts are far from? Oh, mankind's the same. It's the same whether you grew up 
in an Episcopalian service, a Baptist service, or a Pentecostal service, we all have the exact same weaknesses. We need to learn where the Lord is. And we need to be sensitive to His presence. The church of the living God does not have square wheels so that it finds a spot in camps. The church of the living God is supposed to roll with the Lord in whatever direction He's moving. And He doesn't vacillate to and fro. He moves with a purpose. And we have to be aware of His purpose. Verse 21. Then the Philistines seized Him and gouged out His eyes and took Him down. Say, took Him down. Took Him down to Gaza. I've been to Gaza. It's not a pretty place today. I asked an Israeli soldier in Gaza, what is your largest struggle? He said, it's not the IEDs. It's not that when this woman approaches our barricade, I don't know whether she's pregnant or whether that's a bomb. That's not our largest struggle. He was a battalion commander and was in his early 30s. Do you know how obscene that is? but he'd been at war his whole life. He said, my largest struggle is to remember that these people are human and love them for being human beings. (laughs) Oh, church, people's struggles can take you down to a place you don't want to go. They can gouge out your eyes so that you no longer see what you should see. Of course, if your sin, if your eyes cause you to sin, what are you supposed to do? This is the first time in Samson's whole life that he has no eyes and he begins to see clearly because sin is being removed. Trials serve such a purpose. They have a way of eliminating all of the extraneous factors. When it's left to you and the survival of your faith, it often comes down to things like, do you really believe the Lord loves you? And do you really love Him? It often comes down to the most simple of truths. When you're outside of a trial, we can can debate premillennial and postmillennial We can debate preterism. We can debate pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. We can debate so many things with great fervency. But when the trial comes, you mostly want to know who stands with the Lord in the foxhole, don't you? And by the way, if you have been pre-trib all of your life, it's okay. You're about to live to see it change. You have the right to continue to be wrong until it's been proven that you're wrong. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that some of the most devastating scriptures, like the Lord has left him, are followed by the most beautiful scriptures? It's almost like there's a crucifixion and three days later a resurrection. What a difference three days makes. Think of the difference these few sentences make. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. 
binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. Oh my goodness, have you ever ground away in the prison? There was a night this week where I wrestled in prayer. And not in the good way. Not wrestling in prayer victoriously. Wrestling simply to believe what the Bible said is true. I was fairly certain that I was a failure. Fairly certain that the church was destined for failure. Fairly certain that we were making no difference at all. Grinding away in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. I want you to know that your covenant can grow again even if you shaved it all off in an evening. I want you to know that there is hope after destruction in the midst of a prison grinding away. In the midst of a prison with no eyes. In the midst of a prison with no sign of His covenant. When His last experience with the Lord was feeling as if He walked out. His hair began to grow again. The nature of your setback and whatever trial you face is temporary. If you still love the Lord, your hair will grow again. If you still love the Lord, there is rebound. There is resurrection. There is hope again. You may have ended your marriage yesterday, but today it's still alive. You may have executed your children with your words this morning, but there's always this afternoon to raise them back to life. You could make grace so cheap with this kind of statement. Well, what difference does it make what I say and what I do? I can always repent tomorrow. But the grace of God has appeared to all men to teach us to say no to ungodliness. When your hair grows back again, you are thankful that there is life. You're not ready for your next shave. When you can see again, you're not ready to have your eyes put out again. When you can see again, you begin to say things like, Lord, just one more time. Just one more time. Would you give me a chance? And when he does, and when he does, oh, your, your, your setback was just temporary. This is not an excuse to sin so that grace would abound. This is an eternal perspective on a temporal problem. So you failed. Hear me. Stop it. Repent. Do better. Grow stronger. Succeed. All those impossible things that we know you can't do, but He can cause it again. If a man could not destroy the Philistines with his eyes, with his covenant, with his God, with his freedom, with his family, how was he going to do it without all of those things? Well, it turns out when it looked like the Lord deserted him, he hadn't. His hair began to grow again. Oh, church, the thing I love the most about our Lord is what I would call the reversal of fortunes. Not only are your trials inevitable and your setbacks temporary, the Lord delights in reversal of my fortunes. Somebody turn with me to Micah, the seventh chapter. Say there when you were there. 
Am I preaching to anybody in this house yet? Because if I'm not preaching to you, then I don't know what we're doing here. I love that our messages are listened to online, but that's not our church. You are the church. And you will face trials. They're inevitable. And you will have setbacks, but they're temporary. And it may look like your fortunes are irreversibly harmed. But listen to what Micah 7 says. Verse 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Oh, we are to read that together. Y'all ready? Do not gloat over me, my enemy. I want you to hear the tenacity in his voice. The grit. One preacher said the stick to Preachers can make up words like that. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. I.e., I'm not really fallen. What looked like a fall was merely a stumble. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit, not I did sit, not I used to sit, not a long time ago in a galaxy far away I sat. Though I sit now, presently, in darkness, the Lord will be my light. This is not an excuse to sin. This is an acknowledgement that if any man is in Christ... He is a new creation. This is an acknowledgement that you are in a dungeon. The Lord God can take you from the basement to the boardroom in a moment. Let the world quit on you, but don't you quit on you because the king hasn't. The king of kings says you sit in darkness, but I will be your light. I was reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week. The voice of the Christian conscience in World War II. When all others nearly went silent. He's among the lone handful that stood up for God's people and he was imprisoned for it. He learned to praise God for the little things. Twenty times in his diary, he thanked God for bringing him a cigar. He said among the kindest things that any widow ever did for him, was she procured his favorite cigar and he had never known such tranquility as when the Lord visited him while he enjoyed its fragrance. He sat in darkness and the Lord was his light. I have sinned, failed, blew it, and now it appears that I'm destroyed. Anybody been there? Stand back and watch because my king is in the business of turning tragedy into testimony. He does it for a living. It's his character. It's his reputation. It's what he does. And I'm proof of it. He didn't just do it in the past. He's doing it today. He's not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the 10,000th chance. He saved me then. He's saving me now. And in the name of Jesus, He will save me again. The idea that you got perfected when you got saved. 
Oh, be careful that you don't create a system of righteousness for yourself. The truth is you're a miserable mess. But He's called you to be so much more. And on occasion you see it break through. Oh, the church can be so self-righteous. It's part of our defense against the trials. Fight? We don't fight. Trials? We No, no, we don't have trials. Then you must be terribly immature. You must have absolutely no perseverance. Because... These things are our joy. There's life in this fight. There's development in this fight. In the name of Jesus, this is how we grow. It's not a strange thing. This is our happiness. I'd like to reconcile a couple statements for you in the Word. You guys have enjoyed doctrinal dodgeball, have you not? You have noticed that there are scriptures that seem to advocate a point of view and another that show you a different side of the coin. And yet God is not conflicted. The Eastern mind is far more comfortable with mysteries than we are. They acknowledge the beauty of God in some of the mysteries of God. Romans 6, starting in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's pretty crystal clear, isn't it? We died to sin. You have an obligation, an effort, a mission. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. (laughs) How are we doing with that? (laughs) I hope you're doing better than me. I'm sure you are. Let's examine how Paul was doing with that. In Romans 7, in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I, who is I? It's a personal pronoun. Who's writing? Paul. We know that the law is spiritual, but Paul, I, am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Can you imagine writing that in the inspired Word of God? To a church you never met, how concerned with His image do you think He was? For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. The same guy that a chapter earlier said, don't let sin reign in your molder body, sounds like he's having a problem, doesn't he? And if I... Do what I do not want to do. I agree the law is good. In other words, it points it out. As it is, it is no longer I myself. Don't you love that sentence? I myself. Who do it? But sin living in me. How can we reconcile the imperative to die to sin and the reality that sin is nearly always present with us? We wage war. We do not stay down in our trials. When we sit in darkness, the Lord becomes our light. When knocked down, we get back up. The Lord becomes our light, our righteousness, our Savior. We count ourselves dead to sin and alive to what God says we are. 
What is the right response to a failure? Well, we could ignore it and say it never happened. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible acknowledges that your fortunes may have been dissolved, but God can change your fortunes in a moment. So, we make grace cheap. And we simply say, well, I know I'm forgiven for that. You may indeed know that you're forgiven for it. And yet, Peter looked right at a man and said, pray and perhaps God will forgive you. Is grace so cheap that we don't even acknowledge our situation? Did not the second chapter of Titus tell us the grace of God has appeared to all men and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness? So how is it that we deal with sin? I know we'll punish ourselves. When you've sinned, feel bad about it for 72 hours. And after 72 hours, maybe we could sell you an indulgence or a penance. You could come and we'll hit you so many times. That could be fun. Now we've added to the cross, have we not? Grace is no longer cheap. It's more expensive than Christ's blood. It also takes your self-mortification, self-loathing. So which is it? How do you reconcile these things? Did you receive a bulletin today? There are 12 things in your bulletin that the Bible says you are. It doesn't say you might be. It doesn't say you try to be. Ephesians 2.6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms. Even when you sinned, where were you seated? Your position didn't change because your performance did. Does that cause you to take for granted your performance? Does that cause you to go, Oh, well, since I didn't lose my seat, I guess I'll keep doing it? Not if you're really seated with Him. Can you imagine being seated on Christ's throne and saying, I know I did that thing that you died for, but ha, no big deal because I'm still seated here? Or with the kind of grace that says, I did that and still didn't lose my seat, cause you to never want to do that again. How about the second one? You are a son. Romans 8.14 says, Because those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The first chapter of John says it as well. As many as who believed on Him, He gave the right to become sons of God. It doesn't say that you will one day in the future. When you believed on Him, you became sons of God. When you were led of Him, you became sons of God. When you fail, you're no less a son. My son wrecked my truck the other day. Did absolutely no damage to my vehicle. That's the kind of wreck you want. It apparently caved in the other car. Doesn't say much for Chevys. I'm sorry. If it had been a Dodge, it would have completely destroyed it. We let that sink in for a minute. He was no less my son the moment afterwards. And the moment I saw contrition, I wanted to alleviate his burden. Had I seen no contrition, I would have applied it. Our Heavenly Father is not interested in us punishing ourselves. What is the right response 
you wage war. You say, that was not me. That was an enemy living in my flesh. I am seated in the heavenly realms. I am a son. I am a co-heir. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am clothed with Christ, full in Christ. I participate in the divine nature. I have become the dwelling place of God. I've been strengthened with all power. I am a holy and royal priest and ambassador of God. And I will be His inheritance. And when you feel otherwise... You persevere in what the Bible says is true about you. You war for what the Bible says about you. And you refuse to sit in mediocrity. You cast your die. You trudge forward. You fight for it. It may mean that you have to ignore some opposing points of view. I want you to know there are some thoughts I won't even claim as mine. You know, just because a bird landed on my head doesn't mean he owns it. Of course, if you let him build a nest there, it's certainly in dispute, isn't it? And perhaps this is one of our issues. When we're thinking about these kind of things, I stole something when I was seven. I walked into a 7-Eleven on Jones Creek Road and I took a Mr. Goodbar and walked out. I made the mistake of telling my sister of my accomplishment. And she blackmailed me into doing her chores for a month and told my parents anyway. I received the beating of a lifetime. Bought a candy bar from the same store. Walked to the owner and told him what I did and paid for it twice. When you look at me, do you see a thief? Are you sure? Thieves steal. I stole something. When you look at me, do you see a thief? When a sinner sins, he is doing what his nature that has defined him does. It is who he is. It is what he produces. He is... A sinner, when a saint sins, it's the exception to the rule. It is the opposite of the character that now identifies you. It is not you. It is the power of sin working in you. You are counting it dead even though it's not. You refuse to let it rain even though it occasionally makes its appearance. So if it defined you yesterday, in the name of Jesus, the reversal of fortune happens now. This is what repentance is. It is taking you from the dungeon to the dominion of God. All in the space of time it takes you to die to the enemy within and live to the character of God. How do you wage war, Christian? You wage war by fighting for the character of Christ. You wage war by delighting in God's law and your inner man. In submitting your spiritual act of worship to Him. So that the members of your body even obey Him. Somebody say Amen in the house of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. How many? Anyone. How many of you are in Christ? 
You know, of all the things that I might not raise my hand for in church. I know, it was rhetorical. Buddy, you ask me if I'm in Christ, I'm not going to miss that roll call. You ask me, of course, there's the possibility you're not in Christ, isn't there? Praise God, you didn't lie. Either the thing that defines your character is Christ or it's sin. And therein lies the difference between sinners and saints. And it is what is so reprehensible about saints referring to themselves as sinners. I'm not just an old sinner saved by grace. It's what I was. I'm a saint of the living God now. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm His Son and seated in the heavenly realms. And when I sin, it's not me. It's the power of sin working in me. I am a willful schizophrenic in that regard. Two natures operating in me, but one is on the way out because of this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has and the new has. The old has gone because it's perishing from neglect. The Greek actually implies that. It's being starved out. It has gone, it is going, and it will be gone. That's the tense here. It's all of them. It's ongoing. The new has come, is coming, and will come. You want to read a 300-page book on this verse? Look up Spiros Zadhades. He dedicated most of his life to it. Church, we're in the business of standing in trials. they identifying our struggles. Us turning from those struggles and God reversing our fortunes. So if you sit in darkness now, what is on the way? Light. Who brings the light? Oh, it doesn't come out of you. The Lord is my light. Come on, say the Lord is my light. Oh, we sing it well. We say the Lord is my light and, and whom will I fear? But then we walk out in fear in the name of Jesus. It is time to live our words. It is time to stand up in the name of Jesus because you are a new creation. Have you ever considered that half of the battle with sin was not about the sin you committed, but by the results of that sin that invalidated you and shamed you and caused you to back up and let up and shut up when you were supposed to attack? Oh, come on, it's bigger than us. It's bigger than your little problems. It's bigger than the relationship fight you had over peanut butter and jelly. All of those things were aimed at one thing. For you to believe that your fortunes were permanent. I think that our trials teach us to rely on the living God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1. We're going to read exactly two more scriptures after this one. 2 Corinthians 1, say there when you were there. In 2 Corinthians 1, find verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. Have you noticed that Paul was not very concerned about letting you see his weakness? 
My daddy used to say, never let them see you sweat. Paul is willing to let you see him sweat. I've heard it said many times, never let your kids see you, are you? I've heard it said many times, never let the church know about the leadership struggles. I want you to know I think all of that is patently false. Certainly your children should not see sin. Certainly the congregation should not see sin. But we have mistaken struggle for sin and conflict for sin. We're in conflict every day. We're in struggle every day. My nine-year-old daughter knows how to hit her knees and pray for finances because she's aware. Does she seem overly burdened to you about it? Does she seem to walk around with a weight that I was designed to carry? No, I'm a good father and I would not allow that to happen. But to shield her from struggle and shield her from conflict is to damn her to an existence that does not know how to fight, succeed, or win. There's a difference between discipleship and cloistering. There's a difference between protecting and preparing. In the name of Jesus, our Father allows us to struggle to teach us. He allows us to struggle so that we persevere. He teaches us to persevere so that it can complete its work. Church, we cannot shortcut the process. We can't work around it. We can't think. By the way, what would happen if you raised a child in a medically sterile environment? You'd have no immune system. You know, it's the funniest thing, Curtis. We were in Africa. You remember little Lista? Lista was a newborn. They picked Lista up by her feet. Lista walked around naked all of the time. Lista sat in the dirt ate off of plates that I don't know if they were ever washed, and the same knife that we used to cut rope and trim trees and all those things was chopping up our food. Those kids are never sick. I bet they've never seen a uh, vitamin, a prenatal vitamin. But the kids are born strong and healthy. How does that work? Do you think in all of our efforts to protect and all of our efforts to shelter, we may have had an unintended side effect? We have may have produced Christians that have no idea what it is to struggle and win. Actually think that they're entitled for you to struggle for them so that they win. Church, these are necessary. They're our joy. We're fighting for the lives of our children. We're fighting for the health of our marriages. We are fighting for our relationships. We're fighting for unity. We're fighting for truth all the time. Jesus is the Prince of Peace and He's in contention in every chapter that He's mentioned in. He is full of conflict and yet perfectly at peace. There's a reason these struggles happen for. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. How confident was Paul in his flesh? He's telling you, I've reached the end of my rope. And not just him, but we. Who was we? Men like Timothy. Men like Silas. Men like Paul. Men like Luke. Oh, obviously all losers, right? We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Does anybody... Have a a King Eric translation for that? It was so hard we wanted to die. 
Why would you write something like that in the Bible? I mean, isn't that airing our dirty laundry? Show them the victory, brother. Why would you let people know something like that? I mean, it's certainly not what you see in a 30-minute sermon on TV. You wouldn't have time for the offering. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Sound like a struggle? But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who... Church, this is the key to struggle. You're supposed to struggle to the point of failure. You're supposed to struggle to the point of death. The point of the struggle is not that you succeed, but that you learn to rely on the king and not your own arm. The point of the struggle is that you experience the resurrecting power of God. So that you could look at an enemy and say, don't you gloat over me, enemy. I may have appeared to fail but I'm gaining the strength that it takes to step on your head. My elder brother did it. And he says, I can do it. And I'm looking forward to stepping on you. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under whose feet? The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Apparently before we crush him under our feet, there is an awful lot of struggle. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. The God who saved you is saving you and will save you in the future. You will never get to a place where you coast because you have not reached maturity yet. When do we reach maturity? When does the struggle end? His salvation has stamped your inner being. Your mind, will, and emotions sometimes go along with it and sometimes they side with your flesh. But there is a day coming when even your flesh will have sin stomped out of it. There will be no more war within. There will only be war without. This happens at the resurrection of the dead when you know and are fully known. It happens at the coming of Christ. And I long for not a rapture that is an escape, but a change that says the war has been won. Oh, church, that I could get you to see what the Lord sees. There's not a single loser in here. Oh, you may have lost but you're not a loser. The same way that I stole, but I'm not a thief. The character of Christ has been deposited in you. You participate in the divine nature of God. The question is, which character is going to define you? No matter how long you've been in the race, can you still repent? Can you still turn? Are you so set in your ways that you develop your own system of righteousness? Or can you let Jesus Christ steer you? This is an interesting time for us because the rubber is going to meet the road. I've watched churches come apart at the seams at this stage of ministry. All is well. Discipleship is well. And suddenly the nitpicking begins. Suddenly division begins. Typecasting begins. 
We begin to point at the trials that each other have lost, and it begins to define the way we think of each other, and that church didn't survive. I want to remind you who Jesus Christ says you are. I want to remind you of what we're called to be. I want to love you enough to correct you, receive correction from you, and run on together whether we agree or not, because this too the Lord will make clear to you. We are called to be more than just church attenders and pew sitters. I told you two more scriptures. Here's the first of the last. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. If you don't carry the death of Jesus, then they don't see the life of Jesus. What does the death of Jesus look like? Well, what did He die for? Tell me, why did He die? Whose penalty did He take? He was nailed to the tree for what? So you always carry around in your body the death of Jesus. What does that look like? Your failures are on display. Your sin is not hidden. This is why the Bible says even to us elders that we're rebuked publicly. Because nobody is exempt when they see the thing that Jesus died for inside of you. Then they also get to see the reversal of fortune that causes them to see the thing that Jesus raised for. Listen to how he goes on to say it. Oh, my page turned. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that this life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. People seeing the depth of your struggle and that God reverses your fortunes, sees the crucifixion, gives them a chance to see the resurrection. We think our job is to show the world the resurrected life. That's only half of your job. The truth is, if you just show them your actual life, they'll be able to see the resurrection in it. Is the resurrection power so small that you think you have to hide every fault? You need to appear perfect to the world. It's the resurrection of Christ of such little value that we need to practice certain days, certain foods, certain clothing, certain externals. Or is the resurrection of Christ big enough to say, I have no idea why Cody chooses to worship on Monday and Bob chooses to worship on Tuesday, and Nick chooses to worship on Wednesday, but there is an undeniable power inside of them. And I think he's wrong on this point and right on these 12, and wrong on this point and right on these 15, but there is an undeniable power, and I want that power. Amen. Oh, we have worked to eliminate every point of contention and every struggle, and so we stay immature. 
If discipleship of 20 years does not produce someone who knows the difference between these things, then the discipleship has failed. Discipleship of six months ought to teach us the difference between holy and unholy. Nobody who trusts Christ is fallen. And holiness is obedience to the Lord. Somebody say amen. Amen. I would like to close with one last scripture. Turn with me to Proverbs. When you get to Proverbs, find the 24th chapter. Do you sit in a place today of despair? Are you struggling to see hope? Did you come in here and this was your last little lifeline? You feel like a failure more than you feel like you're succeeding. And hearing me preach today, did I step on your toes? Did I hit your pet? Because I tried to do all of the above with all of my heart. And I'll try again next week and the week after and as many weeks as it takes because I know something. I know that Proverbs 24, starting in verse 16, if we could put that on the screen, says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Back up to verse 15. Look at the circumstances. Do not lie in wait like an outlaw against a righteous man's house. Do not raid his dwelling. Understand, this is from the king of wisdom warning the world. Why is the church of the living God an anvil that has worn out hammers? Because the pits they dug for us, they fall in. The gallows that they built for us, they are hung on. The same demonic powers that have planned my demise will be caught in their own plans to the point of strangulation. Don't you lie in wait against a righteous man's house. Verse 16. For though a righteous man falls seven times, what is seven in the Bible? Completion. You could fall to the place of death. Anybody out there falling pretty far from the Lord? Caught up in sexual immorality? Caught up in depression? Broken by repetitive sin? Anger and strife define your life? You're not dead yet. Your life's not over yet. Something has beat you. There's a boulder you can't move. Struggle's not over yet. It's still developing you. For though a righteous man falls how many times? Completely, utterly dead. He rises again. The hope of the gospel is that whatever your state is now, it's not final. And even if this life is taken from you, that is not the end. Perhaps a little eternal perspective on our struggle will cause hope to live again. I'm fully aware of what it's like 
to fight against sin and feel like you're losing. If you're fighting, you're not losing. It's when you fail to fight that you are losing. We've not made grace cheap. We've allowed it to still be grace without being a license to sin. Could you stand to your feet?